just joining us, a very warm welcome to this uh, Elite Business Live. This is our second day, so welcome back if you're here uh, in London, in Earl's Court, and uh, if you're just joining us uh, on our live stream as well, whether you're at home or at the office or wherever you might be, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, also, thank you for um, the opening session, particularly to Eric Partaker. That was great, wasn't it? Really good. We're now setting our reminders. We've got a digital sunset. It's life-changing. Actually, I don't know if you've heard this, Eric made an amazingly generous offer in his talk about offering 10 free coaching sessions uh, for an hour each. So ericpartaker.com. Do take advantage of that. Genuinely, one of the best hours I spent last year was in Eric's company. Um, the one thing that Elite Business Live has taught me is to expect the unexpected, and I mean that in a very good way. That's what happened when I met Eric. I did not expect him to be how he was. And when I'm introducing the next guest, I'll be honest, I don't want him to be offended, but he is not what I expected, the chairman of a massively award-winning transformational accountancy firm to be. And that's not judgmental. It is a bit. I realize what I'm saying. But actually, Carl Reeder, I have admired from afar for many years because he's helped thousands of people to start up, to scale up as well. He's written books literally on the subject. He literally wrote the book, The Startup Coach. He wrote the book, The Franchising Handbook. And today we've got him on this theme of digital transformation by his own admission. Not a deep techie, but someone, my goodness, who has seen how technology can supercharge businesses. He's hugely welcome anytime on the elite business stage, and especially today. Please give it up for the brilliant Carl Reader. Ollie, thank you okay. so much. Thank you so much. I've got no idea who that guy you were talking about oh. is. Yo, who, who was he talking about? That's an amazing intro, so thank you so much. Now, as Ollie has quite rightly said, I am not a techie myself. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm not really an accountant by design. And what I want to do is to take you through the last 23 years. What I've seen in my time in the accountancy sector from effectively an accidental accountant but then how we pivoted our business probably about six, seven years ago to really take advantage of the opportunities that technology affords us. So that's me there. As you can see, I like to make a bit of a prat of myself and stand out in a crowd. Um, but if I was to rewind, it, it wasn't always that way. Look, I left school at the age of 15 and started a YTS in hairdressing. Now, I know that that's going to age me massively by admitting that I know what a YTS is, let alone was part of it. Um, show of hands, who knows what a YTS is? Good. I, I'm amongst great company, and that means my next slide is going to work as well. Um, but a YTS to me was effectively slave labour. It was the government's old apprenticeship scheme, and what it meant was I got paid 30 quid a week to work six days a week, washing hair, sweeping up, it was dreadful. Um, so I decided at, you know, uh, go back to school. I did my GCSEs, um, did, really didn't do too well. But then, I guess when life came at me, my girlfriend was pregnant and I had to get a proper job. I couldn't get away with working two hours per day at the supermarket anymore, um, stacking up fruit and veg. So 
applied for every job in the newspaper, went for interviews at two accountancy firms and the army. Believe it or not, the army said I was underweight, but I got offered two jobs in accountancy, and I have to share a secret with you guys, if you haven't heard me speak before. Have to share a secret. I didn't even know what an accountant did. Okay, I, I vividly remember sitting in the library beforehand, um, putting out one of those old-fashioned things called a book and actually finding out what an accountant does, what a set of accounts is, what taxes. Um, anyway, I got involved in accountancy, and it was a real wake-up call. So I'm just going to ask, I'm going to open it up to you guys. Who can remember what happened in 1997? There's a prize of some free hand sanitizer if anyone wants it. Any suggestions? Princess Diana died, absolutely. Any others? Tony Blair? Any others? Okay, let me share with you what was going on in 1997, because it really doesn't feel like that long ago to me. We had Tony Blair. We had the Princess Diana's um, unfortunate passing. The first Harry Potter book was released. South Park had started off as a new series. And the Spice Girls, having dominated the UK the year before, had gone on to take over the US. Now, on top of that, loads of other things were going on. We were all petrified of mad cow disease. Arsenal had just about started to knock off Man United's domination of a premiership, and Nick Anelka was banging in goals left, right, and centre by the end of the year. I remember that well. And Backstreet was back, the Titanic film was released, so this stuff wasn't that long ago. So imagine my surprise when I started at my accounting firm and I saw this. Okay, this was the reality, guys. In 1997, this is what accountants were dealing with. The office didn't really know what technology was apart from a landline telephone. My first day, I attended you know, as a 16-year-old and um, expecting to have a computer to work from because we'd started to use them at school, um, expecting to be able to dive into a spreadsheet, expecting possibly even to have email. We had one computer, okay? So that shows you where the accounting profession started insofar as digitalization at the start of this 23-year journey. We would have to, quite literally, write out documents like this add them all up one way, add them all up the other way, and make sure that it all balanced. It took countless hours just to summarize a typical business's set of records because they wouldn't send us um, disks or CD-ROMs at that point. We would get a dusty red cash book where they would handwrite what they've taken in for the day and what they've spent. Now, technology moved along pretty quickly. Within about a year or so, we started to receive um, computerized records. Uh, we used to um, have packages like Sage and QuickBooks and so on. But there was a real problem with this. Those things aren't really the most robust way to store data, okay? Let me fast forward, because we stuck in this phase for about five years, I would say. Let me fast forward to the point where we decided we had to do something different. By 2002, I joined a new firm. Um, I'd moved over to an area called Swindon. Um, joined the firm, there's about eight of us working there. And one of the partners who founded the business had a bunch of clients in the martial arts world. Now, 
some of you who've not been involved in martial arts well would probably not even realise that martial artists have professional businesses, let alone actually use accountants and declare the cash they're taking. But there were a few of them. So we had about 10 or 20 of them. And I was gifted this set of clients by the founder and told to just go out there, start speaking to them and see what happens. No one else liked working on them. They weren't the ideal client to have. Within a very short space of time, we actually became the um, country's largest um, provider to martial arts schools. Uh, at our peak, we were looking after about 250 martial arts schools across the UK. And that brought with it some real issues where technology started to help us. But again, like most technological innovations that I've stumbled across, it was for the wrong reason. I thought that by adopting online accountancy in 2002, which you've probably all heard of now, we were the first in the country to do it in 2002, but there was one reason. That reason was to stop these things getting broken in the post. Okay? I would love to say what every accountant is preaching nowadays, that it's for um, visibility of information and proactive service and so on. It wasn't about any of that. It was to stop floppy disks getting broken in the post. But that was the start of our journey of looking at how technology can help us work with businesses. And you know, we stumbled across the benefits along the way. Now, for me, the, um, the big fork in the road was when the internet access came to a point where we could actually rely on it. You know, if we think about 2002, I don't know um, if any of you can remember what dial-up internet was like before the days of broadband, but you get the loud noise come out through the speakers and you just hope that you're actually going to get connected. The reality for our customers was, you know, if I was to be brutally honest about this, it was more for our convenience of looking after somebody in Scotland or Northern Ireland than for their convenience. The reality for our customers was that every transaction took them 10 seconds to key into the computer and about three or four minutes for it to then upload so they can get on to do the next one. It wasn't an ideal solution, but it allowed us to, as I say, build relationships with businesses across the country. Um, as the internet speeds increased, so did the um, software packages that we could use and the options that we could give the businesses that we started to work with. And through the martial arts world, we started working with a number of franchises. Um, this kicked off initially for, uh, from martial arts franchises. Um, you know, a school owner would train a couple of black belts, they'd want to make some money from the black belts. Um, there was some strange VAT laws around martial arts at the time that meant that if they franchised it, it was more tax efficient. That was the sole focus for them at that time. And we stumbled across franchising. And we thought, do you know what? There's possibly something we can do with this technology but we could look after franchises across the country, again, with no idea as to why we were doing it, no idea really of the end benefit, just the fact that it allowed us from a single office in Swindon to service clients up in Scotland, down in Cornwall, over in Belfast, etc. So we started in franchising. And I guess this point was where the fork in the road came for us. Because many firms have taken online technologies and gone in one direction. Um, you see this picture of me doing what I do best, which is um, playing around with my mobile phone. Let's be honest, guys. Come on, let's be honest. 
Who wants to do their accountancy on a mobile phone? You know, who actually wants to do accountancy? That's not what this technology should be all about. So rather than becoming a channel partner for software providers and focusing on how books can be updated on the move, instead we looked at how we could actually use the data that we have to hand and the technology more wisely and in a way that can really help benefit our clients, which led us towards developing the franchise dashboard. So, as Ollie said, I'm not a techie, okay? I've got an idea of how tech can help businesses, but I'm not a techie myself. So I'm going to ask you now that there's no techie questions at the end, but I will answer the business questions around implementing the technology. What we noticed with franchises, and it actually kicked off from a theatre arts school in 2007-2008, was that... Before long, we had more information on the franchisees and how they were running their business than actually the franchisor did. We knew all the suppliers. In fact, we knew them on first-name terms because we were meeting them at the conferences. We knew exactly how much they should be spending on things like um, this theatre art school on hall hire. We knew what they should be spending on uniforms. We knew what the average revenue should be per student. Um, we started to work with their um, CRM provider to understand about the timetabling. Um, we understood the mechanics behind how they recruited students and so on. We became a real data source, but a live data source. And Franchisor didn't actually have that information. Franchisor was still receiving paper reports 12 months after the year end. We started consolidating it on an Excel spreadsheet. And it was in around 2012, 2013 that we started to develop the franchise dashboard where we could suck in the data from individual instances of an online accounting system, consolidate it, and report appropriately. So that was the first step, and it was to address the pain points that a franchisor really had which was, first of all, the lack of consistency across franchisees. You know, if you imagine 50 businesses with the same sign-up and the same systems, if they're not given the detailed guidance of how to structure their financials, then actually you could be comparing apples with oranges because one of them might have a Ferrari through the books, the other one might have a Fiat. And when you've got that difference in the underlying data that's going into the accounting systems, the franchisor doesn't know if a business is actually truly profitable or not. Secondly, it was about just making sure that things were transparent and the relationship between franchisor and franchisee was in such a format that franchisor knew what was actually going on at the ground level and franchisee could benefit from the fact that franchisor knew about this through best practice. Because we found very early on, and it sounds really obvious when I say it, but by using data, we were able to identify the minimum performance requirement and the maximum performance requirement to get the optimum output. Now, that might sound like a bit of jargon there, so let me explain it in really simple terms. Let's imagine that you're going to open up a shop, and your shop is going to sell widgets, okay? And you need to make the shop profitable. You need to sell enough widgets to pay the rent. It's as simple as that. The reality is that if you're hiring a quarter of a garage behind someone's house, nobody's going to find your shop. You're not going to be able to hold enough um, stock to service your own wages and so on. So you need to do a bit more than that. On the flip side, if you decided to approach Mike Ashley and take on one of his department stores, 
you're in a very different situation where the, the costs of running that business are going to far outweigh the actual addressable market for those widgets. So if there's somewhere in the middle that's a sweet spot, and through the dashboard, we were able to start identifying what those sweet spots were. And rather than using gut feel as we had in the past, you know, um, historically, we'd looked at things like um, roughly what is the percentage of rent against turnover, for example. But we were actually able to use data points to really try and identify this. It allowed us to start becoming a true trusted advisor. It moved us on to expanding out our services as well because we started out in the accounting space, but we're very clear, compliance accountancy is probably gonna die over the next 10 years. And I feel relatively qualified to say that having been privy to some of the technological advances so far, and also I'll hold my hands up starting a business to try and do that anyway. Um, the compliance side of accountancy is gonna die, so advisors to businesses have to adapt and have to take advantage of what they can. So from that perspective, we looked at what other services could we build around the data that we've got. And the first one was our franchise funding department. Okay, um, franchises, I, I don't know, I know there's actually a couple of franchisors in the room, but I don't know if anyone else here is aware of the franchising space. But there are preferential funding terms for franchises. The banks tend to like franchising because it's a trusted model and they will typically lend 70% of the investment cost rather than 50%. So that helps franchises, but if it's a new franchise, it can be challenging. If the bank by itself has had a particularly bad experience with that network, it can be challenging. So we had to look at right, how can we use our data to really try and improve this experience for um, franchisees and in terms of franchisor who has a vested interest of making sure the funding goes through because they want a new franchise. So we were able to use the data that we have on a network to be able to deal with the franchise directors at the banks and evidence from an anonymized perspective the actual performance to date of where the franchise is rather than the historic performance of the handful of franchises that they look after. So that was a great use of this data where we were able to expand our service lines based on the technology that we had in place. The other side was our business advisory side of things. We decided very early on that whilst financial data is absolutely vital when it comes to running a business, it should be a platform for the advice that a business is given, not the limit to the advice. Okay, we were very clear that for us, advising businesses isn't about you know, printing out nice reports and sending them out. We wanted to make sure that actually we could use that data to then identify where we could truly help the business um, reach its goals. So things like our franchise resales department, our selling a franchise website, um, we've got a marketing team that we put out for franchise recruitment, and we, it's all based on the data points that we have across the franchise network that we're working with at that point. The anonymized data from the 3,000 franchisees, 150 franchisors that we work with, um, and it, we then get the experts in what it is they're advising on to offer that advice. So we found that the technology and the particularly the use of technology has really helped us mitigate the risks 
that we have of um, an industry where we are ripe for disruption. And I'll, I'll come on to the risks of our industry in a moment. So for us, technology and innovation is not what we're all about. Okay, I have to hold my hand up. As Ollie said, I'm not a techie, it's not my bag, but it's a useful part of the tools alongside the specialist skills and most importantly, the relationships. One of the key things that I find that many businesses are lacking nowadays is the acknowledgement that we are living in a human-to-human -human society, not B2B or B2C. And we believe that whilst the um, core technical skills of our business might be eroded through automation, um, and we might move from having humans preparing sets of accounts and tax returns to humans just reviewing, um, to ultimately the computer doing 99% of the work, we as a business need to supplement the technology and data with relationships. That's the only way that we as a business can compete with the um, technology companies that really do operate at scale are far better funded than we will ever be. You know, we, we can't compete with them on a purely technological play. So I guess that would be one key takeaway I would give to any business owner looking at, should we be embracing technology more? Um, absolutely, yes, you should. But it has to be alongside where your key skills are. You know, I tend to look at automation, and in my mind, I have a bit of a matrix of automation about what can be automated away and what can't. And for me, that matrix is comparing um, interpersonal skills and specialist skills, okay? So if we were to think of a, um, a job that's got low specialist skills, and I might really offend someone here, so I do apologize if any of you work at McDonald's, um, but if we think of low specialist skills and low interpersonal skills, it is the McDonald burger flipper, it is, um, you know, let's be honest, factory workers. It is bookkeepers and lower-level accountants. That is the reality when it comes to automation. Because software can move its fingers around the keyboard far quicker than any human can. Software can add up a list of numbers far more accurately than any human can. So we need to make sure that we're playing at the higher end of that spectrum where we look, you know, so from our team, we look for interpersonal skills, uh, but also specialist skills as well. So um, just as an aside, what, what do you think the job that's probably least likely to be automated is? Can we have any suggestions? Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Possibly. <laughs> so, so Boris, interpersonal skills or specialist skills? <laughs> any others? Sorry? Coaching. Coaching. Quite possibly, although there is a process underlying it. Would you, would you like to know what my contention is? Dentists. Because you might not believe it looking at the tattoos, but I am petrified of needles. So quite frankly, if someone's going to take my teeth out, they, first of all, I need to know they know what they're doing. Secondly, they've got to charm the pants off me to get me in that chair, open my mouth and have a needle put in. So that's the reality. But, there is a wide spectrum of jobs that um, could potentially be automated or are potentially protected from automation. We believe in our industry the core technical skills can potentially be automated to some extent, but I genuinely do not believe the relationships can be. So where are we going with our technology? I think the important thing to, to make clear is that there is two sides to us insofar as technology. 
there's technology that benefits your customers, and hand on heart, that's what we've focused on so far. But there's technology that helps your business as well. Um, I've recently been involved with a business that um, actually looks at process automation within businesses. And one of the things I realized very early on is that our processes are nowhere near as automated as we thought they would be. So from our internal roadmap, we're looking at how we can reduce the burden on our administration team. We're looking at how we can reduce the burden on our technical team and use the technology that's actually available to everybody. So things like automating our onboarding systems, we take on probably 60 to 70 clients per month now. Each client probably takes about three hours of manual labor to take on in terms of phone calls, in terms of production of engagement letters and so on. That's a horrific admin task for someone. It's not a very enjoyable job either. So we're looking at how we can have end-to-end -end automation to also remove um, any risk of things not being updated on our systems properly, um, to make sure that there's single points of truth on all contracts that we have with our customers, making sure that actually there's no wriggle room for debates anywhere. Um, we're looking for externally as well. You know, my, my real passion is about using the data to benefit our customers. That's, that's why we started developing this tech. You know, that, that's why we started to get involved in this space and I guess pivot more towards a tech company than a professional services company. Um, the first things that we're looking to do is to use the data more intelligently and at risk of sounding like me against the world, to try and help our franchisors compete with the bigger players. So we're looking at how we can extract the data of who franchisees spend their money with so that they can have the same block buying deals that a national corporate would have. So for example, if you were, um, let's say you were working for British Gas, um, British Gas would have a contract with Vodafone or O2 or whoever, and they're probably not paying much more than a tenner per month on line rental. A franchisee could be a franchisee of a national brand, but is a business in their own right, and does, they don't necessarily have access to those buying deals. And that's the same, whether, whether we're talking about mobile phone deals, right the way down to dealing with local suppliers. We're able to find the data on who's spending how much with who, provide that to franchisor, and help them negotiate preferential rates with their franchisees. So that's the first thing on our roadmap. The second thing is to open up our dashboard to franchisees. Now, clearly, with the space we're in, it has to be anonymized, it has to be in a format that franchisee can go in and can understand, but without learning too much so that they can um, undermine the contractual relationship they have. But we, we see in an ideal world that rather than franchisor being forced to um, either pat franchisee on the back or um, hit them with a stick because of bad performance, franchisee can actually identify this themselves and self-help some of that process. So, so that's on our external roadmap. Um, but also, I think it would be remiss of me to say that, or remiss of me not to say that there are tremendous risks facing our industry as well. Um, I mentioned earlier that I genuinely believe compliance, accountancy, tax return preparation is going to be automated from the likes of QuickBooks and Xero. Yeah, they're marketing direct to market. That will happen. So we need to make sure that the technology we build helps bake us into the relationship but also helps us live to our vision of adding value, not numbers. So that's a brief overview 
of what we've done from a digital perspective. Now, I did say, please go easy on me. I've opened up some questions here, and I've got some suggestions to help, help you. I've been in your place before. I know what it's like when you, sometimes you really want to say a question, but you don't want to appear stupid. So if that's the case, here's some I made earlier. Do we have any questions? Now, hang on, forgive me, this is good, but we're going to get you on the mic just for the, just for the live stream. <laughs> forgive us. Thank you. Stand by. Hey, Carl. Um, with technology moving at pace as it does, is there a risk to you as an advisor that actually firms, franchises, your clients could start doing this stuff themselves? Or actually, do you think that that advice piece that you offer and that your firm offers actually really outweighs the, the kind of cost benefit of... of cheap implementation? So I think, that's a, I think that's a continued risk, and I think that's a risk for um, any provider of services that could potentially be automated. So if we were to look at other, um, other professions that have similar risks as well, uh, we could look at lawyers, where there's now a clear split between document production and the advice on those documents, whereas maybe 10, 20 years ago, the same person would do both parts. In a bigger firm, certainly, they've split that out. Um, I believe that, the, uh, for me, the key is that we stay ahead and always try to add something else other than just the technology. So a great example of that is company formation. Um, if I can bring a practical example of where we, we actually struggled to find where our special piece was that we could add to the jigsaw. Um, we, as a business, historically charged £300 plus VAT for a company formation. That was just the way it was done. Every accountant did the same, every lawyer did the same. And then Companies House came along and said, you can do it for 15 quid online. At that point, we had to really, uh, for me, we really had to find a way to justify that 285 quid gap. We had to find a way that we could, we could actually justify continuing to do it for 300 pounds. First thing we did was to cut out the middleman, quite bluntly. Uh, we were using a formation agent who was charging us 200 pounds. So we cut out the middleman, and then we looked at, right, this 85 quid that's left, what do we actually offer for this 85 quid? And by speaking to clients, we engaged with them, we tried to understand why they would use us for, let's say, 100 pounds versus company's house. And it was actually for the reassurance that they hadn't done anything wrong. So that whole process, what we did, we looked at what is the core of what needs to be done, what do our customers want? And then we found the solution there. Now, the company's house example would only apply to, to true commodity services. When, when it comes to um, the advice side of things, I do genuinely believe that that's something where the data can help provide a platform for it. But at the moment, that still needs human input. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, Thanks. Yep. Any other questions? Okay. Um, do you want me to repeat that question? Yeah. Yeah. So I was just asked, um, in my kaleidoscope, I think it was a phrase you used. Absolutely. On my end of a kaleidoscope, um, what are the new innovations within the franchise industry over the next five to ten years? 
Yeah, the biggest changes. So it's a really interesting one because franchising actually hasn't developed so much over the past 10 years, really. Um, so I've been involved from a governance perspective as a director of the British Franchise Association, and that's afforded me the luxury of seeing what other nations are doing, um, what the technology companies are doing, and to really get a feel for what's going on in the space. Um, internationally, and this might surprise you, I believe the UK is ahead of most regions, um, whilst the US and other regions have legislation in place and improved disclosure, actually the UK is doing pretty well in terms of technology adoption so far. Where it will go, I believe the biggest thing will be smart contracts um, and some form of, whether it's blockchain or another technology, um, some form of um, validation of a contract and the integrity of it by all parties. So not just franchisor and franchisee as it is at the moment, um, but the bankers being involved and others all, um, all having some input on the agreement, but also the um, pre-disclosure information that's provided beforehand. Um, that's my personal take on it of where the main technological improvement will be. Um, and I believe that that technological improvement will help um, reduce the risk of misrepresentation, which for those who aren't in the franchising space, that's um, where the franchisor promises one thing and delivers another effectively. So I think that that's a big thing. I think that in terms of performance management, I think that we will continue to push forwards insofar as how franchises are managed and hopefully shift the role of a franchise auditor to become more of a genuine franchise advisor. Um, I think that's a desirable to have as well. Um, but as with any change process, you know, we need to be really aware that we need the humans involved in that process to embrace the change as well. Does that help answer your question? Thank you. Perfect. Any other questions? I think a lot of uh, people talk about, you know, make assumptions about what's going to work in a franchise business and, and a franchisor will sort of say this is the model. Uh, you talk about using data to make or help make better decisions. Has there been a particular like, light bulb moment or a particular example of uh, a decision that's been or, or an insight that's come about from looking at the data the, that a franchisor had completely ignored or completely uh, overlooked? Uh, that has transformed the business? Absolutely. So a couple come straight to mind. I can't give specific examples, but I can give very, um, very general examples based on industries. And the first one that I can give is in a tuition business. Um, a franchise network had a very rule of thumb approach to what the cost should be. Now, it didn't actually take into account the other costs of running the business. It didn't take into account the region and so on, the demographic information. So by putting all of that in, we were able to find that basically the advice that they were giving wasn't the advice that a franchisee should receive. And you know, don't get me wrong, that puts us in a really difficult position as well because we have to have a, obviously a gentle word with franchisor that the data is perhaps undermining the advice they've been given previously. Um, and then I guess a much more general example that I can give is insofar as... Um, a bakery chain that I can't, again, can't say the name, uh, but there's a bakery chain that we imported into the UK. 
And the data showed very clearly that what worked in their home nation wasn't working here. Um, and it was, in fact, surprisingly, the volume of wastage, which they had never considered even checking. Um, but yeah, we've, we found all sorts of things through that product mix and so on that um, in other businesses that are similar that's allowed us to identify what needs to change. Any other questions? Good. Thank you. Carl. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask that this is a great technique, by the way. If you could do it all again, what would you do differently? Wow. Um, so if I could do it all again, what would I do differently? Yeah. I would pay attention at school, to be honest, Ollie. I would, um, I would actually learn about this tech stuff because I, I, I'm going to share something that actually nobody else knows apart from my parents. At the age of five, I used to love programming my BBC Micro, uh -huh, uh -huh. okay? I used to program on BBC Basic, and it was really poor programming. It was print Hello World, go to 10, that mm. kind of stuff. Um, but I did have an interest in it at a really early age. But I let that go because I learned as I grew up about girls and going out and all of that stuff. And I didn't focus on coding, which was actually a really popular thing for people to do, and a yeah. lot of people made a lot of money by doing that. So the first thing I'd do very differently is I would have been on the tech bandwagon to get onto the internet when it first came out. Mm -hmm. um, but also that then follows on to my, I, I guess, my more relevant answer, which is I wish that I had um, done more due diligence on the technology side of things and mm -hmm. truly understood what the tech guys were talking about. So in another business, I've got a few investments in a few businesses. In another business, we would spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on tech, developing tech that wasn't fit for purpose, and we had to scrap it and start again. Yeah. And that was simply because myself and the other co-founders in the business, none of us took the CTO role. None of us had the ability to be the CTO, and we believed what the outsourced coders told us. Yeah. So we ended up with a, a fully built project in .NET, which I understand is a really bad thing. <laughs> so, well, fear not, Carl. The good news is, well, first of all, can we have a huge round of applause for Carl Reader? Thank you. Carl, please join us back on the stage.